Welcome, everybody, to the first inaugural Minnesota DNR Prairie Podcast pilot episode. I'm sitting here today with Jess Peterson, and we are launching this amazing thing where we're going to talk through all things prairie and what's going on. So today's episode, we're going to focus on scratching the surface on how to grow a prairie, looking at some restoration and reconstruction. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome. I think so. I'm so excited. I and probably more excited. I can't even believe that we're here. So just to get you familiar, since this is our inaugural episode, whose voices are these? My right. word, who is talking to you? People need to know. People need are. to know. So I'm Megan Benage, a regional ecologist for the Department of Natural Resources, and I cover prairies, wetlands, sloughs, agriculture land in the southern part of the state. So that's anywhere to the Iowa border, South Dakota, up to Candy Ojai County, and creeping over into southeast Minnesota and Dodge and Mauer counties. And I'm Jessica Peterson. I am the Minnesota DNR Prairie Habitat Research Scientist. And my role is to um, do my own research, conduct my own research, but also to disseminate scientific research that other people are doing. And so that it's in a consumable format for land managers and anybody else that's interested in the science of prairies. And that's some of what we're going to be doing with this podcast. So we started this because if you're like us, we spend an inordinate, that's an awful lot of time, in the car. Just driving around to get to our field sites. And so we thought, wouldn't it be nice if you could listen to two knowledgeable people chat about a topic that we love? Prairies. I love prairies. I do love them so love much. Them. I'm, I mean, I'm pumped. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And today's podcast, we have to apologize a little bit because it's a little bit of a teaser. We're just going to get into our favorite subject, prairies and how to grow them. But we're not going to cover all the details because that's a huge topic and we want to keep this kind of small for the first inaugural episode. Scratching the surface. Scratching the surface. On how to build a prairie from scratch. Yeah, we didn't know there was going to be singing, but it happened, so I'm fine with it. You just never know. You just, you don't know on the podcast, these things happen. Let's jump right in. So we're going to start with our background here. What is a prairie? Yeah. Just so that we're all on the same page. I think most of y'all know who are listening, but prairies are open communities, right? They're dominated by grasses. They've got species-rich, diverse components. And you're going to hear me say that word diversity over and over again, because Jess knows diversity is where it's at for me. That's the key. That's the key. What does diversity mean, Megan? When you say that word diversity, what does that mean to you? Oh my gosh. I mean, it actually gets me a little bit of chills when I think about how amazing prairies are and how diverse they are. So I'm going to explain it this way. A climax prairie, if you think about it, just like a climax forest, consists of thousands of different organisms this could be plants thousands 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 this could be plants animals invertebrates bacteria soil 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 alive i know there's down there organisms down in the soil there's fungus so all of these things the diversity component is that all of these things have complex interactions where they're exchanging nutrients moisture energy flow and all of that It's creating and providing them with food, water, and shelter that they need to survive. And so to me, diversity is the backbone of all of our ecological systems. Without it, you do not have a functioning landscape. And so when we talk about today how you build stuff back, you've got to do it with diversity. Yeah. I mean, that's it's the key thing. 
So we, t we don't really often think about prairies as having like a climax stage, but they do. And in that stage, they're just majestic. They're functioning really well. They've got all the pieces and the pieces are that diversity component. So why do we care about all this, Jess? I mean, what's, why prairie? Well, prairie is important. Prairie is historically what was on the landscape, right? Before settlers came in and plowed it up for important purposes, right? For food, for people. Feed people and animals. I like to eat. I like food. Right. People like to eat. Used to be covered with prairie, though. Right? So this prairie harbored all of these critters and plants uh, for habitat. And it's gone. Right? We've lost most of our prairies. We've lost almost all. Starting to get emotional. Starting to get emotional. We got 1% left. Oh, my gosh. Right? 1%. And we're losing more. Even today, we're losing more. Um, so... That, that's sad. It's a sad thing. But we have the capacity to build it back. Um, so that's what we're here to talk about today. There's still grassland on the landscape. And, and we can add more. We can convert land that has been converted to agriculture. We can, we can create that prairie back. We can get it back. Close. Kind of. Kind of. We try. We try. We're tinkering. We're trying. We're tinkering a little bit. Yep. We're trying. I mean... You all know it's much easier to take the original and just keep it how it is. Sure. When, we, when Jess says we can build it back, we have some capacity to do that, but we're still learning. Mm -hmm. The science of restoration is so new, and it would be incredibly conceited for us to think that we have all the answers. Because we don't. Nature's complex. It's hard. But we got to build prairies, and the reason why we have to do that is because when we lose, Jess talks about 1% left. When we start losing that, we're losing... The diversity of our prairies and that makes up the fabric of minnesota that makes up this rich natural heritage that we hold here we always talk about how many lakes we have right 10,000 12,000 15,000 however many it actually is but those lakes were built with prairie along the southwestern corridor of the state and up into northwest minnesota like this is this is a prairie landscape this is part of what makes our culture and the fabric of Minnesota so rich. And so anytime we lose habitat like that, we lose function. So I'm gonna quote Aldo Leopold here. I said I wasn't gonna do it on the first episode, but how do you start? <laughs> I mean, how do you start a DNR podcast without quoting the father of conservation? He's the man. Yeah, I, he is the man. I don't know, or was, we should say, right. but I don't know how you do it. So one of his main principles, like one of his famous quotes is that to keep every cog and wheel is the first precaution of intelligent tinkering. And so think about that. Have you ever done this where you like build a Lego? I mean, I don't because I can't build Legos. But let's say that you did. You start to build a Lego and you get to the end and you're like, I'm missing a piece. Mm -hmm. My battleship was almost done and now I'm missing a piece. You got to call the company. You got to get a new, you got to find where the cat took it. It's under the radiator. I mean, it just doesn't feel right without no. that last piece. And so that's part of prairies being a piece of this landscape. Minnesota wouldn't feel right to me without them. Right. We need them. And we talk about building prairies, and we talk about, we often think, at least I do, and I know other people do too, that we think about, well, we just, we just plant it, right? That's all we have to do. We just, we just plant it, build it, and they'll come. But prairies are so much more than just the plants, right? We're losing, oh, yeah. we're losing habitat, which means we're losing plants, but little by little we're learning that we're losing so much more right so we've lost some of the big critters we don't have bison around 
We don't have so many uh, badgers and things like that. But we're starting to lose the little guys too, right? We're losing skippers. We're, we're noticing, finally. We're waking up to smell the coffee that, that we've lost functionality. We're not just losing habitat. That's bad a, scene. That's absolutely true. That's a bad scene. And so let's talk a little bit about just so we're on the same page. And I know... Like when you when you work in the field of conservation so often, you get to this point where you're like, well, of course we need prairie. But then we forget how to explain it to people. We forget why mm -hmm. it's so important. I mean, habitat loss and function, that's one piece, right? But prairies are also an important part of our farming community. You can graze grasslands. You absolutely can. There's lots of complexities involved with that. There's lots of debates about the right way to do that. But it can contribute to sustainable agriculture. It certainly can. And then... The whole reason why we converted prairies in the first place is because they have a phenomenal, tremendous amount of organic matter in them. They are the key example of soil health at its best. And so when we talk about that in agronomic system where we're talking about building soil health back, it's because we're trying to mimic this amazing natural system that did it right the first time. They also, I mean, think about prairie roots. When you think about prairie roots, man, I know it gets me. They it's are crazy. Big. They're big roots. We we kind of throw out this number that what you see above ground, you have about seventy five percent more below ground. Just think about how tall a big blue stem plant is. Okay, mm -hmm. it's tall enough that it just covers me up in the prairie. You can't even see me. I gotta mm -hmm. carry a flag on my backpack so people can see me in the field. It's ridiculous, but I do a little orange flag bobbing behind me. <laughs> it's it's terrible. But this is what happens when you're short and you work in the in the great, beautiful landscape of Minnesota. So you got 75% more roots going vertically and horizontally. That is your soil health bank right there. And those roots are working hard. They're not just building organic matter, they're filtering our water, they're providing wildlife habitat for our soil organisms. It's, there's amazing stuff going on. Jess, talk to me a little bit about some of our wildlife and prairies, especially some of our smaller wildlife, like you talked about earlier. Yeah, so that's mostly where I, my brain lives, right? So I, I'm a pollination ecologist by training, and so I think about the little guys. I'm always rooting for them and checking them out out there when I'm on the prairie, right? And putting them in vials and bringing them to people and showing them. Sometimes people get a little creeped out. It Most is time little, people are excited. Because <laughs> a lot of people don't look at them. They don't, they don't pay much attention. They're looking for the birds or they're looking at the plants and they forget about the little guys. But Little guys is where it's at. There's so much diversity, insect diversity on our prairies. Prairies provide habitat for all kinds of things. Fungi, even. Well, this is another little guy we forget about oftentimes. They're, they are essential to prairies. I am a firm believer that, that fungi are where it's at. We, we pay so much attention to thinking about the big things. We got we to gotta be focusing on the little guys. So prairies... Prairies provide, I just encourage everybody, next time they're out on the prairie, and this is what I do, Megan's laughing at me, because this is what I do, I want people to notice the insects. Next time you're out and about, you don't even, you don't even have to be on the prairie, you can do it in your front yard. I got prairie plants in my front yard, I do this all the time, I look at the little guys, because they're so cute. So, and it's part, it's part of health, right? That's part oh, of what makes it well, very healthy. Yeah. Like they're when cute, you, too. They're cute. I mean, they're adorable with their long antennae and their giant eyeballs looking at you, their little cute wings. One of my goals in life is to get people to notice the little guys, right? So it starts, but yes, Megan's right. They have an important purpose, but I, I want people to notice them and value them for what they are, not necessarily their role that they play. 
right? So yeah, pollinators, they're moving pollen around. They're, they're doing amazing things for our ecosystems. They, they're also aerating the soil, right? Most of the pollinators that we see out on the prairie are solitary, right? So they're digging down into the ground and aerating our soil. They do amazing things. They do so I know. much. And you don't even think about them digging down there. Like, it's one of those things where, like, when you're a little kid, you're like, it's raining outside. You know, you look out your window and you're like, Mom, where do the deer go? Mm-hmm. Like, when it's raining. Like, right. whose house do they go to? You know, and that's kind of like pollinators. Like, where do the pollinators go in the winter? Yeah. And, and as you start understanding all these little bits and pieces of what makes a prairie so amazing, you can finally begin to have a grasp on how your recipe is going to come Oof. forward for how you're going to even attempt to build it back there's a lot of ingredients that you're gonna need Mm -hmm. it's it's true what happens if you leave one out oh gosh it's not good it's not good it's not a pretty picture this uh, this leads right into my soapbox there will probably be one every podcast i'll try i'll try not but this this is our soapbox moment as we move into how do we build it and give you an overview for that so i just want to say this as a caveat we don't have all the answers there is still so much to learn I mean, as soon as you think you've got this all figured out, nature throws a curveball at you. There's all kinds of weather things that are just out of your hands. You can plan how you're going to do a reconstruction to the best of your ability, and then nature just throws a curveball at you. So drought. It's, drought, flood. yeah, flood, whatever. It's, it's very complex. And so it's incredibly difficult to put these things back. It's much easier to protect what we have. But we are in a situation in this landscape where we're working towards doing – to just that, to the best of our ability, trying to put it back. So you want to always be looking at that native prairie. And like Jess was saying earlier, look at the little guys, look at all those pieces and components and figure out how you're going to entice those things to come back to this piece of ground that you're going to try to build back to a prairie. And I mean, if you look, if you spend any time at all looking at a native prairie, they're majestic, right? They're fascinating. So it's easy to get lost in their majesty. So when, when we're building something back, We do look at the plant community because it kind of all starts with the seed mix and our site evaluation. And so one thing I want to say here is that if you look at the plant community, you're going to find that they're in very distinct groupings. And this is the way that plants grow. I'm going to refer to these through this next section. I'm going to call them guilds. So when we we restore a prairie, if we miss one of these guilds, okay, and this is where we're talking about cool season grasses, warm season grasses, forbs, legumes, you need annuals, perennials, these kinds of things. If you miss one of these guilds, you're setting yourselves up for failure. Let's back up a second. Yeah, I'm ready. I don't I have a little anecdote. I was on the, I was on the phone once, long, long time ago when I was doing my master's degree. I was on the phone with the land manager and I was asking him some questions. That about, was a long time ago. It was it was, it was a while ago. <laughs> uh, and I was asking some questions about um, where these uh, various roadside prairies were. This is in Iowa. And I was about 15 minutes into the conversation. I kept using the word forb. Finally, the guy goes, I don't know what that word is. This word forb that you're using, I don't know what that is. And and then it, I, it occurred to me that none of what I had said had made any sense because I was using jargon. So let's define some terms. You used a couple terms, forbs, legumes, cool season. Let's get those let's get those defined. What is a forb, Megan? It's a flowering plant. Oh, a flowering plant. Okay. So one that yeah. flowers. Yes. All right. It's one that flowers. Beautiful flowers. Beautiful flowers. Alright, legumes. What do we got? What are legumes? They're nitrogen fixing. Nice. So it's important. That is important. So it's a category. There usually are forbs. Like most of our legumes are forbs. Right. 
but it's a peas. special kind. People may know them as peas. Yes. Right? That's what we tend to think of. That's the most common group that we think of as nitrogen fixers. But there are lots of other prairie plants that wouldn't necessarily be a pea, but they might be in the bean family because they're a legume that are nitrogen fixers. I'm going down a little bit of a rabbit hole here. Maybe we need to tell our listeners what our future plans are. We're going to go through this stuff kind of superficially today, and then in future episodes, we're going to delve into these specific topics in more details, right? Yeah, each of these components that we're about to discuss. Because it takes a while Oof. to go through prairie reconstruction. You can't just do it in 30 minutes. There's no, no way. And so we're going to go in. Uh, we talked about guilds a little bit. And so now I want to talk about kind of the steps that you go through as you're building it. And so I'm going to list these, and then we're going to say a few words about them just so you get the list. So the first thing that you should be thinking about, diversity right? What number one. number one thing you should be thinking about and your site goals. That's the first thing. The second thing is where's my seed going to come from? Seed sourcing. I want to think about that. Then I want to think about, okay, how am I going to build my seed mix? How am I going to do that? And then I have to think about how am I going to plant it? What equipment am I going to use? What technology do I have? And then we start going into these management phases. So there's an establishment phase, which is generally anywhere between one to three years or one to five, depending on what's going on with your site. And then we have long-term management. And then after that is where Jess really comes into play. How are you going to yeah. evaluate what you did to know if it's working and giving you the functionality that you hoped it would be, or is it just pretty? Did you just make it pretty without making it functional? That's something my colleague, Lisa Galvin Inver, always talks about. Like, you can make it look real nice, but if it's quiet, and there's nothing living there, what did you really do? You just put a picture on the landscape instead of putting habitat on the landscape. Oh, man, that's good. That's you're a good analogy. You're missing Legos. You're missing a whole bunch of Legos. I know. You're missing pieces. a whole bunch of Legos. So now we're going to step into those just a little bit, and Jess and I both are going to talk about those pieces. So we're going to start with diversity and your cycles. All right. This is the thing. There is no one way to build a prairie. If somebody tells you that, they do not know what they're talking about. <laughs> I just said it. Like, there's no one way to do it. There are, are wrong ways to do it, but there's definitely no one way to make this happen. So it's kind of like making a cake. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of cake recipes, right? But at the end of it, you still get this delicious cake if you follow the recipe. So I'm going to argue that anything that you lay out to do when you're trying to put a prairie habitat back is that you have to have diversity in there. Because if you don't, you've already missed the biggest ingredient in the cake. You've missed the sugar, people. If you don't have the sugar, that cake is just going to be horrible. Like you're gonna, It's not going to taste good. It's not going to taste good. So you want to think about diversity, but you also want to think about your goals, right? And the Department of Natural Resources, we have all kinds of different goals for our habitat. Sometimes we have land that we have multiple goals usually, right? Like we have land that we know hunters are going to want to use. And so we want to make sure that it's functional to them, that we bring in game birds, but we also want to build, we don't do single species management. We want to make sure that it's good for all the species that are out there. And so we have to try to juggle and there's limitations with that. Jess, what about seed sourcing? Talk to me a little bit about that. Man, I'm deep in it and, I, and you're going to have to make sure I don't go down another rabbit hole. So it's brief, have... brief today, brief overview. I know, it's brief. Ooh, seed sourcing is Big topic right now. So many people are thinking about seed sourcing. I had a big meeting yesterday. I haven't even told you about it. I know. It was, so, it was a great meeting. Um, 
with a bunch of research colleagues talking about where the gaps in our knowledge are about seed sourcing um, as it relates to prairie reconstruction. So it's, it's an exciting time to be thinking about seed sourcing as it relates to things like climate change. Um, but there's so much that we, we, um, we still have questions about. So, you know, there's a variety of places you can get your seed. And, and I, I continue to kind of push this diversity envelope from, from a seed sourcing perspective. We want, we want to get diverse um, genetics when we think about seed sourcing to set that seed up for the best possible future, right? So, so we, we got to get diverse seed. We got to get seed from a lot of different populations that have been collected at different times under different water situations. That's going to give that seed the best chance to grow and live um, under current climate conditions as well as future climate conditions. So, so you're talking about resiliency. Oh, for sure. You're talking resiliency. about making sure you have resiliency. Yep. Yep. Resiliency. Like, which is the ability of a habitat to withstand change, yep. no matter what change is thrown at it. Because we can't predict the future. We can to the best of our ability with the best science tools that we have. But, you know, yep. ultimately nature throws us curveballs. Right. So we need it to be resilient to ex withstand those extreme weather events, right? So if we're talking about extreme drought or extreme mm -hmm. rainfall that leads to flooding, we need to be able to withstand that. And that's what resiliency is. So I think about that at... At the species level, right? We need we need diverse communities from a species perspective. We need a lot of different species in that mix, but we also need each of those species to ha come from a diverse seed set. So, seed source is going to be a big. It's going to play into those goals that you were talking about, Megan. It's going to you know where you get your seed or how you get your seed, how you source it, is going to you know depend on what your goals are of your of your site reconstruction. So, um. Lots to talk about with seed sourcing. It's just the next step in this process of um, how do we build prairies. So, so once you kind of decide, and, and this is kind of a little backwards because the way I do it or the way we do it in the DNR is we usually build a seed mix and then we decide what's available sure. and how far we're going to go to source our seed. So maybe it's a little bit backwards, but it's a process. You know, it's a process. So when you're building a seed mix, again, I, I mentioned those guilds that you're talking about fulfilling. You need to make sure that you've got cool season grasses, warm season grasses. You need to make sure that you've got um, different types of forbs in there, legumes. And then, in general, we've done the science, we've done the research, we know that you need to be shooting for a target for most of our prairie habitats with a minimum of 40 seeds per square foot. And if you're not doing the math in seeds per square foot, switch now. It's the, it, is, <laughs> it is the best science that we have. You, we've got to start retraining our brains. And it just makes sense. Think about it. If you take a, a couple of rulers and you lay them out on the floor so that they make a square foot, you're picturing, you're envisioning how many plants are going to grow within that seeds per square foot. That's what you're doing when you're building a mix. I don't care how many pounds you have. I want to know what's going on in that square foot of ground. And so when you think about it that way, it just makes a lot more sense and you're going to get better results. So you want to think about that. There's lots of debate about how, what percentage of forbs should I use versus grasses and sedges. Let's don't forget about sedges. Too. Um, everybody seems to forget. I know. I, I, well, I, I know. There are some people thinking about sedges. There's just, but they're like, they're 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 the low man. They're just like the poor little forgotten 
I know. kid or something. I don't know. It, we got to get him. We got to get the sedges. we just tell you what. Once you're listening to this podcast for a while, you're going to get this disease. It's a rare disease. It's called sedge <laughs> fever. Once you get it, you cannot stop looking at sedges. And you just, they will frustrate you and fascinate you at the same time because they are amazing plants. I think and people so, are scared of sedges. You think I, mean, people? I mean, yeah, they're a little scary. Yeah, anything that I can't identify without a seed head on it is a little frightening. Mm -hmm. But uh, they're an important part of a prairie, and they would be in a prairie normally. Mm -hmm. So there's ratios, right? Um, I'm a big, firm believer of trying to get to, at a minimum, a 50-50, 50% forbs, 50% grasses. Um, I think that builds you a really solid mix. There's lots of things to consider. We have species that are really competitive and outcompete, so you need to try to limit their ratios in the seed mix. There are other species that we call restoration conservative species. These are species that you could plant pounds and pounds and pounds of them, and it's not going to translate to that once you plant it. It's just not going to happen because they're species that aren't very aggressive. They might be difficult to establish, things like that. There's lots of things we need to talk about. We talk Ooh, about seed mixes. It's going to be a big episode. It's going to be a real big episode. You can tell this is Megan's favorite I, This is part. my jam. Like she's going down the rabbit hole. I know. I get she's really... She's getting excited. I get excited. I like all the math. I like... Somebody... Okay, I'm just going to say this. Oh, Somebody boy. said this to me the other day. They said, there's so much work and planning that goes into trying to match a seed mix to your specific site conditions, looking at your soils, your topography, moisture, all of this, Right. But if you think about it, you get one chance. Yeah, one chance. Well, to build it. W- maybe. For the most part. In general, In general. Y- you get this one chance. So it's worth it. Okay, I'm done. I'm done going on the rabbit hole. Talk to me a little bit about how we plant this stuff. What do we got to think about? Well, there's a lot that goes in, into thinking about that, too. This is a big process. This is a, it, It's worth taking the time to think to plan this all out and to think about it. And I'm going to get a little bit on my soapbox here to document it because we're going to get down here to the end, but, and we're going to talk about monitoring and evaluating. And if you didn't document this process, and I have a real hard time coming in and saying, you know, what we could have done better. So, or what worked or what worked. Cause you, you don't know what ingredients you used. If you didn't write it down, it's real hard. Yeah. The cake might be delicious, but how'd you make it? Right. So, planting prep, you know, we got to decide. You have to write it down. You have to figure out a plan. Talk to a lot of different people. Uh, equipment and technology are are ever-changing and becoming, um, becoming our friends. You know, we have to start embracing the technology that farmers are using to do their precision plantings in our, um, in our plantings. So, we can talk more about that. Megan and I are getting real excited about the field day we're planting this summer that's going to really touch on this issue of technology and uh, and using equipment in the, the best way we can. Right. How you translate your plan that's on paper to real life field situations. Because everybody knows even the best laid plans, once you get out in the field, it's like, oh, well, this soil is wet and my map says it's supposed to be dry. I got to adjust. Yeah. So there's biggest thing with planting is you got seasonality, right? You can do it in the fall. You can do it in the spring. You can do it in winter. And you can broadcast seed it, you can drill it. There's lots of different ways. And so we'll touch on that as well. Then after you do that, what are you going to do for this establishment phase management? What are your choices? you got lots of tools in the toolbox. One of the ones uh, that we use a lot is spot spraying. We're going to talk a little bit about that. Uh, I'm a little nervous about how much we spray and how much just 
sheer hatred there is towards Canada Thistle because you have to think about every management choice in the long term. So I'm not saying it's a bad thing to kill Canada Thistle, but what I'm saying is, is if doing that ultimately damages the majority of your forbs or flowering plants um, in what you've just planted, what have you really gained? So you have to think about when you make your management choice, how you're going to keep that functionality. And we'll have some guest speakers on to talk through that because, as you know, lots of people make different choices with this for their establishment phase management, how they think, um, what, what they think is going to give them the best results. And there's not necessarily one right answer. And the problem is, like Jess is saying, you don't necessarily know <laughs> if the choice you made was right or wrong until you get further down the road. So there's so many factors. There's, there's so, so many. There's factors. so many factors, and that's why the science has had a hard time keeping up, or or even attempting to document some of these um, these different variables that can play a huge role in in whether or not a, a prairie looks good at the end or not. Looks good and is functional. Looks good and is functional. Right. So and then there's long term management. That's where we'll get into a little bit about prescribed burning, grazing, haying. Um, spot spraying, some using of uh, maybe rotating in food plots with cover crops. Like there's lots of other, there's like weird stuff that's going on that is innovative and exciting. And I think we have to remember that when you think about all of these different types of tools in your toolbox, whether it's 10 head of cows or it's a drip torch, you have to think about not just, okay, I'm going to burn in the spring, I'm going to burn in the spring, I'm going to burn in the spring. If you do, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. So when we think about managing our prairies long term, whether they're reconstructed prairies or native prairies, we have to think about how we're going to mix it up. How do we mirror the unpredictability of nature? How do we do that and still meet all of our other goals of what we have for that site. So that's going to be real interesting to talk through that. Just talk to me a little bit about, we, we already touched on evaluating your planting, but I think this is just such a huge piece. And everybody who's been doing this for any amount of time says, I need to know, like, how do I know if I did a good job? Like, how do I know what my next step is? I feel like I'm guessing. Yeah, it's huge. It's huge. And there's some really cool, um, there's some really cool initiatives going on that are trying hard to get at this evaluation piece. There's the grassland monitoring team. There's the Prairie Reconstruction Initiative. These are different things that will highlight as we move forward, you know, that ways in which we can all work together. It's one big happy family. I like working together. I know. Well, when we're we're stronger together, right? I mean, nobody has. I'm gonna quote Lisa Galvin ever again. Nobody has all the knowledge, know-how, no. tools. This is a loose quote. She says it much better, but <laughs> nobody has it all. And and so when we work together, we get to kind of combine all those really interesting ideas that we have and great ideas and we come with a better outcome because yeah. we get to combine all of our experiences. I mean, I've been doing this now, I'm ashamed to say it, but for, for over 15 years, I've been in this field of prairie restoration. And I certainly am a much better restorationist than I was 15 years ago. And the choices I make now, I would like to think are better informed by the science. And I also have under my belt, lots of failure where I can t point to that and say, oh, I don't want to do that again. So if you combine everybody's failure together, you get l a better likelihood of success. And I love that. Yeah. I love it. It's an important step that's often that's often overlooked. Although people 
people are starting to value um, evaluation. So, so we'll talk about that. I'm excited. It's my favorite part, of course. I know it's your favorite part. That's where we're going to hear Jess talk a little bit, a little bit more about things, and she'll be, she'll just be so excited. I won't even be able to contain her. Nope, you won't. Jess, it's time for uh, now that we've kind of given you a little bit of a teaser overview of how do we build it. It's it's time for our section of the podcast that we call Let's Science to the Literature. This is exciting. This is my favorite part, of course, because I'm a scientist. That's where I live. It's in the science realm. Well, Megan's a, Megan's a scientist, of course, as well. But I read. And over and over and over again, I read. And it's wonderful. And I like to tell people about what I read. I would just like to clarify for everybody listening that I also read. Maybe, <laughs> in case it's not clear, because it seems like Jessica's saying that no, I don't I'm not, read. I'm not saying but, that. But she definitely, I mean, this is her jam. And it so is. I fully... I ask her for this stuff all the time because she she reads more than I do. Unpublished in science. <laughs> well, me too, but we're not going to start wheeling out all of our papers really? and certifications. Why do you say it like you're so surprised? <laughs> this is the thing. When you work with people for a real long time, they put you in this category of what they think you are. And Jess just put me in my little category of <laughs> land manager. Land no. manager, and so now she's uh, she's surprised that I have published papers. Yeah, that's right. I'm a scientist too. All right, continue. Okay. Tell All me, right. tell me about this because right. this is exciting. All right. Well, I try I try really hard to follow the literature and then uh, try to try to distill it down to some uh, some management recommendations from from new papers that are coming out. So one of the ones I've been really excited about is this sluice paper that um, came out in Restoration Ecology. Can you spell sluice for me? S L U-I-S. William J. Sluice. Uh, I believe this is out of Illinois uh, somewhere. Uh, yep, Morton Arboretum um, in Illinois. If you haven't been there, it's a beautiful place. I almost worked there. It's a, it's a nice place. Um, and so this is kind of why I was questioning the whole you have, to, you, have, you have to do it right the first time. So one of the big um, outcomes of this paper was that they found that restorations that had repeated establishments over time, so not just a single you know, um, seeding or a, or a single um, planting, those that had multiple seeding events, whether it was interseeding or additional plugs through time. So these are really old. The Morton Arboretum is a really old um, planting, prairie planting. And they found that those, those plantings that had repeated introductions of species were more like, they had diversity that was more similar to the remnants than those that just had single um, you know, there's the single first initial planting. So that's why I was questioning that. I would like to ask these authors a little bit more about what those, you know, what those repeated establishments were like. Were they intercedings? How were they, how were these intercedings done? Or were um, they plugs? Because that can make a huge difference. Yeah. Yeah. Plugs being established plants. Like you get a flat of pansies right. in the store and like each individual pansy that right. you get, that's a plug. Except when it's native plants, they're way deeper roots. Right. But they did also highlight in this paper, one of the um, kind of implications for practice was that um, we're missing a lot of these big guilds. And so this is kind of getting back to this functional group thing. We're missing um, C3 graminoids, so we're missing those, those sedges and the early flowering grasses. And then we're missing early flowering forbs as well in our plantings compared to remnants. And we're missing native woody species. So those lead plant and what else? New Jersey tea, things like that. 
we're missing in our seedings. Right, in the googly eyes. Oh, I was just thinking prairie rose. I was thinking oh, of other woody species. Prairie rose. That that's another one. Yeah. So so we gotta fill all those gills and we're not doing a great job of that in our prairie restorations. So And we're gonna talk about that in building the building a seed mix yeah. episode because that's yeah. where I get real excited. And we you do have to have early, mid and late yeah. blooming things and you absolutely, that's why we talked about cool season grasses earlier. Because if you don't have them, you're just always going to have brome. And you're going to be fighting a brome battle right. because you have nothing in the prairie to fight that fight for you. Continue. So that's that's one of my that's one of my papers that I've been referencing pretty frequently here recently. Um, Megan, wanted, you want to talk about the Tallgrass Prairie Restoration Handbook? Oh, it's, it's the Bible. It's probably my favorite book. It, it's the Bible of prairie restoration, and that's the truth. So this book is a mix of science and personal experience. And so I think both are valuable, especially you cannot discount somebody who has spent their entire life learning about this, um, whether it's in a published paper or not. So, you know, these all help to build our understanding. So it's called the Tallgrass Restoration Handbook for Prairie Savannas and Woodlands, uh, The Science and Practice of Ecological Restoration. It's by Stephen Packard and Cornelia F. Mutel. They're the editors. It's $50 new, okay? This is the best $50 you will ever spend. If you could see my copy of this book, it is like my cousin is a librarian. It breaks all of her rules for how one should treat a book because it has been carried with me to the field so many times. It has so many dog ears in it. It's got weird brown marks in it that I don't know if they're like dead bugs or like dirty hands or what. I I don't know. But you need to read this book because some of the stuff that we talk about is like being groundbreaking now. Every time I go back and read a chapter of this book, I'm like, these people already figured that out. Like, why are we still taking so long to get up to speed on the science? And so this does a great job of compiling literature and personal experience from experts in the field. And so I think it's really invaluable. And then Chris Helzer's blog, we we read it pretty frequently. I have it come to my inbox, which is kind of convenient that I don't have to go stalking the, the website. But it, it has kind of a, a cult following, I think. Um, there's tons of good information on there. Um, it's called the Prairie Ecologist blog. And he says, we have a quote here, conserving prairie species in tiny prairies is like trying to catch falling popcorn in a coffee cup. What, what is that? What is he talking about there, Megan? He's just talking about how when you lose so much of the landscape being covered in prairie, like when you're down to 1%, it is difficult to ask that prairie to do all the things that we want it to do. And so Chris is great. He works for the Nature Conservancy. I've never met him personally. Our our goal, one of our goals for this podcast is that we could get him on the podcast and pick his brain because I think there will be some lively discussion. You'll learn that there's always lively discussion between me and Jess. We don't always agree, but those points where you get to have those really constructive arguments, discussions, whatever you want to call them, that's what makes us better scientists and better restoration practitioners. And that's what the goal of this podcast is, is to get us up to speed and do that. But Chris also takes amazing photos. So if you have ever seen his blog, he always has a series of photos in there. And he really captures 
the details of a prairie. So things that you don't necessarily see. It's not just all a bunch of grass. He like cares about the little guys. He cares about the little guys. And that will come through his blog. And he also, his blog is a forum for these types of discussions to happen too. So it's great. Megan, take yeah. a hike. Oh, I would love to. I would love to take a hike. It's beautiful outside. The sun's shining. It's a great day to take a hike. So we are in our segment of the podcast called Take a Hike. Take a Hike. And uh, Jess wasn't just being mean to me. And this is where we're going to feature some lands, public lands. These are your lands that you can visit. And so on the docket today is Red Rock Prairie. This is a Nature Conservancy property. It's about 601 acres. There's also the Rock Ridge Wildlife Management Area. It's 158 acres administered by the DNR. Then there's Rock Ridge Scientific and Natural Area, 203 acres, also administered by the DNR. And then to roll out this complex, to finish it out, is Jeffers Petroglyphs, which is administered by the Minnesota Historical Society. So I just want to read this Jeffers Petroglyphs quote because I feel like it captures some of this majesty of what we're talking about. I'll try to say it in my most majestic this, voice. I, I mean, the, this landscape, the, this landscape is beautiful. It's beautiful. That's I why we're highlighting these prairies. I'm in love with it. it. The rock outcrops, the quartzite, it, I mean, it's just, it's amazing. Okay. Yeah, it's part of, I mean, so what Jess is talking about, this is all part of the Red Rock Ridge Prairie Landscape. That's what it's called. And so this is, all of these properties that we just listed are a series of prairie preserves that you know, they're along a ridge of Sioux Quartzite outcrops, and they are just phenomenal. Right. And so it's it's amazing that these landscapes have survived. I mean, they've survived in part because of the rock, right, because they couldn't be farmed. But but it's just beautiful that, this, that this, there's this landscape that's connected through all these different partners that are, that are working together to create a, a functioning landscape. I know, and I also love that our first Take a Hike series includes all of these partnership pieces. Because yeah. it's not just about what the no. Department of Natural Resources is doing. We're all in this together. And so I like that we're going to highlight not just uh, DNR public lands, but we're going to highlight these other properties as well. And they work so, together. You know, the, this this WMA, the Rock Ridge WMA, I believe, um, you know, worked with the Nature Conservancy parcel that's right next door, adjacent to it to um, source some of their seed from from those adjacent prairies so right. it is it's about this partnership that's that's what it's all about we're, we're not just a single entity working alone out there in the lands no we can't be we've got to we've got to leverage our partners okay i'm gonna read this amazing quote well i think it's amazing but this is pulled right off of the jeffers petroglyphs website which just give you an image of what you're going to see if you take a hike amid the prairie grasses are islands of uncovered rock where American Indian ancestors left carvings, petroglyphs, humans, deer, elk, buffalo, turtles, thunderbirds, I really don't know how to say this word, atlatls, and arrows, they tell a story that spans more than 7,000 years. Now, I've had the opportunity to go out to the petroglyphs and to explore that landscape right at sunrise or this sunset. This is the most perfect time it, to go. It's, I'm not a morning person. Do not, do not go at noon. No, I'm you not. You won't see anything. I mean, I'm not a morning person, so it, it was a struggle. But to see the sunrise over this landscape, it's going to change your whole life. Like, it's going to change your appreciation for prairie, and it's going to help you better understand this 
part of southwest Minnesota, this Red Rock Ridge area. And it's one of our most important prairie complexes. We have lots, I mean, let's face it, all of our prairie we could say is most important because we have so little of it of left. Yeah. Um, but it's just a nice, It's it can in, includes native prairie, so prairie that's never been plowed, and it also has reconstruction, so prairie that's been built back. So it is, you just got to go. Beautiful. You got to go see it. Mm-hmm. In the evening or morning. Or morning. Or anytime. I mean, we don't. I mean, just go. Like, we're not going to. Yeah. Just just get out you there and go. have an opportunity. So that's it. This has uh, been our first inaugural podcast. We really enjoyed being here with you today. We're going to get into more of the nitty gritty and the science behind all this stuff on our next episode. I just hope you guys catch us next week on Prairie Tuesday. That's when these episodes air. It'll be great. It's going to be real great. Yeah, I'm excited. Thanks, Megan. Thanks, Jess. It's super fun being under this table with you. Yep. Next time. Till next time. Till next time. Bye, y'all.